Okay, uh, no, it's not quite time for the sermon, for people who are used to me getting up when it's time for the sermon. Um, In a moment, we're going to have our two Bible readings, uh, and then I'm going to explain um, God's Word. But I want to do a very quick introduction, um, just to set the scene, uh, because this term, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments um, in church together, these very famous commandments that um, God spoke to the people of Israel from the top of Mount Sinai, Um, through Moses. And today, as to sort of kick off the series, I'm going to be looking at the whole issue of the law of the Old Testament, or the law of Moses, and what's it got to do with us as um, Christians. But it'll really help before the Bible readings if we've just got um, an idea of when things happen. Okay, so all I'm going to do now is show a really simple timeline that basically almost goes through the whole Bible, but just with a couple of points. Um, Okay, so uh, we start at the very beginning of the Bible, Uh, all the world has turned away from God and is under his judgment until God calls Abraham and makes these amazing promises to Abraham. Basically, he promises that he's going to bless the whole world and people from all the nations of the world through Abraham's descendants um, in the future. Well, uh, that's in about 800 1800 BC. Um, Over the next few hundred years, Abraham's family grows huge into what we know as the people of Israel, but they end up as slaves in Egypt. Uh, And so then in the the book of Exodus, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God rescues them from slavery in Egypt and brings them out. uh, And he takes them to a mountain in the desert called Mount Sinai. And At Mount Sinai, Moses gives Israel his law through, uh, sorry, God gives Israel his law through their leader, Moses. Okay, so the law is this big and complex set of instructions and guidance and commands from God to Israel. And the law is the basis of what we call the Old Covenant. We'll get to that uh, a bit later. And then, because I said this was going to be a quick timeline, I'm going to skip all the way to the end, okay, to Jesus. Jesus arrives and he brings the fulfillment of those promises that God made to Abraham way back in the beginning. And that's the basis of um, what we call the new covenant, Jesus fulfilling God's promises to Abraham. Okay, so what I want us to see for now is that that time period from Mount Sinai to Jesus is the period when Israel, the nation of Israel, was living under the law of Moses under the Old Covenant. Okay? That's it. All right. Time for our Bible readings. Good morning, church. My name is Rebecca, and today's first Bible reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 21, sorry, 24, verses 1 to 8. So Exodus, chapter 24, Verses 1 to 8, found on page 64. Exodus 24, 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. 
When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and law, all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Morning church, my name is Joseph. Today we'll be reading Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 to 25 on page 944. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, curse is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has already been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, 
then righteousness would certainly have had come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Probably good to keep your probably good to keep your Bible open there at Galatians three. Though I'm going to put up uh, Bible verses on the screen today. And um, apologies, there was supposed to be an outline um, in your info sheets. I'm not sure what happened um, and why the outline's not there, but it'll again come up anyway. Rules. Are rules good or bad? Do you like rules or do you hate rules? Are you like, you always wanted to be a lawyer because you love rules so much? Or do you find rules annoying? Do you think rules just get in your way? They cramp your style? Do they get in the way of our freedom? Or do rules and laws actually allow us to be free? Or is it kind of a mix? We think of Australia as a free country. So uh, in Australia, we're free to own property and possessions without fear of the state or the rich and powerful just coming and taking them for no reason. Uh, We have that freedom because we've got laws protecting ownership. Uh, We can travel around in Australia relatively freely. We, We can actually drive our cars compared to, for example, South America where my family used to live, uh, we can actually drive around without the constant fear that some idiot is going to run you over. Why? Because we've actually got strong road rules. See, we tend to think of rules as as being annoying and limiting our freedom, but you don't have to think about it for long to realise what a good thing laws are. And they actually protect our freedom. And yet, they can only do so much, right? I mean... There's no guarantee about our possessions. They're not absolutely secure against thieves, are they? And there are still idiots who make our roads less than completely safe, aren't there? Because laws can only ever be an external restraint. They they can't actually get inside people and see what's in their hearts and their, their desires and attitudes, and they certainly can't change the attitudes of people's hearts. As I said, this term, we're going to look at the most famous set of rules in the Bible, uh, known as the Ten Commandments. Uh, And the Ten Commandments are really a summary of the whole law of Moses, that big complex set of of rules and instructions that God gave the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So from next Sunday, we'll start working through the Ten Commandments slowly. But today, to introduce the series, I've given myself an impossible job, really. Uh, And that is to think about the whole issue of the Old Testament law, what's it all about? And especially, what does it have to do with us as Christians? All those rules and regulations and instructions in the Old Testament, what do we do with them? If, if you're a believer in Jesus, do you have to obey them? Do you not have to? Is it just some of them? 
Now, this is um, actually one of the most difficult issues in the whole Bible, um, which means that I can almost guarantee that some people will disagree with some parts of my explanation. That's okay. It's one of those topics, okay? But, but it also happens to be way too big for just one sermon. So I'm going to be flying through this pretty quickly without a lot of detail, okay? Skimming over some things. But here's what I'm going to do. I've never done this before. I have a longer, slightly longer printed version of this, which fills in some of those details. If you would like a copy, write on your comment slip that you'd like me to email it to you, or I can give you a physical copy, come and see me afterwards. If you want to take it away and read it through and, and keep on thinking about it. If you don't, that's fine. Okay, so the first thing I want to think about is, what is the Old Testament law? Or what was it? Because in one sense, it sort of belongs in the past. Okay, I'm going to say uh, three things about the Old... Sorry, four things about the Old Testament law or the law of Moses. Uh, the first thing to say is that this law was given to Israel after God had already rescued them and saved them from slavery in Egypt. Now, it's very important to understand that because um, there are a lot of people who think that the Old Testament is all about salvation by good works, you know, earning your way to heaven. And that is just not true. Uh, the law was God's good instruction to the people who he'd already saved and brought to himself. And you can actually see that right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. There's a tiny little introduction before the first law. In Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so even in the Old Testament, God took the initiative to rescue his people out of his pure kindness before they'd done anything. And God didn't give Israel these commandments so that they could earn his favor. These were God showing them how he wanted them to respond to his kindness that he'd, he'd already shown them. Okay, and through the whole Bible, the way people are not saved is by earning God's love, okay, or earning their way to heaven. We're saved only through God's amazing kindness because he takes the initiative to rescue us. All right, the second thing is, this is the big question. What is the Old Testament law? And basically, the, the shortest answer is the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, is a covenant document, okay? Which means it, it was a formal agreement between God and the nation of Israel. And it defined the terms of this relationship. And that relationship is what we call uh, the Old Covenant, that relationship between God and the nation of Israel. Uh, basically, a covenant was like um, a contract, a work contract, okay? Let's say you draw up a contract... Um, with a company to service your collection of antique lawnmowers, okay? Uh, so this contract will set out the responsibilities of the company, how often are they going to come, what kind of maintenance are they going to do to keep them in tip-top cutting condition, uh, and also how much are you going to pay them, um, maybe what will be the penalties if, um, if the, you know, your gleaming machines go rusty. Okay, that would be a kind of a covenant document, and that covenant becomes binding when both parties sign on the dotted line, okay? Now, the law of Moses was a bit like that, except that it was sort of a cross between a work contract and a marriage. 
because it was, it was much more of a personal relationship. It was a relationship of love and commitment between God and Israel. And the law of Moses um, described all the terms of that relationship. Okay, so the chapter before God gives them the Ten Commandments, listen to what he says to them. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. That's Exodus 19 verse 5. Okay, so God set this nation of Israel apart as his special treasured people. That was his side of the agreement, this covenant. And Israel's responsibility was to keep the covenant by obeying all these commands that God gives them. Okay? But the Lord did more than just explain how Israel was supposed to behave. It's not just the commands and instructions. The law also described the consequences of their behavior in that relationship. Uh, that means it explained these amazing blessings that God would pour out on them if they kept their side of the agreement, if they kept the covenant and obeyed Him, but also these terrible curses that would come down on them if they broke the agreement and abandoned God. See, I think maybe the best way to describe this covenant between God and Israel in the Old Testament, uh, at Mount Sinai, it's like a marriage, but it's a marriage with a very long and detailed prenuptial agreement. Okay, you know, prenups, that's that agreement where you write down exactly what's going to happen if we break up and how everyone's supposed to behave. That's like this relationship and the law was the prenup, the prenuptial agreement. And in fact, the reading that we had from Exodus 24 was like Israel signing the prenup. It was, it was signed with blood of sacrificed animals. Um, so listen again, Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. This gets quite gross if you think about it, okay? Uh, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is a very solemn agreement. Okay, Israel bound herself to the terms in this document. All right, the third thing about the law of Moses, this is very simple and quick, is that it is holy, righteous, and good. Uh, now, I'm just quoting the Apostle Paul there. That's what he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. So then, the law of Moses, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Some rules might not be good. Uh, we, we resent rules when they get in our way, but these laws are very, very, very good because they came from God. Of course, he's, he's setting out a good life for his people, Israel. And the final thing I'm going to say about the law of Moses is that it sort of contains three different types of law. This is generally how people think of it. Uh, there are moral laws and civil laws and ceremonial laws. Now, uh, it's not actually a neat and tidy division. There's lots of overlap between them. But it is helpful to understand these categories. Uh, so basically, the moral laws are the ones which um, express a moral principle that is never going to change because really it's just 
a reflection of God's character, who God is. Okay, and God never changes. So, uh, for example, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. It's pretty obvious that that's a moral principle that's based on God's character. God is love. And God has made us in His image. He's given our lives value and dignity. Okay, those things are never going to change. So, that's expressing a moral principle. What about the civil laws? Uh, To understand the civil laws, you need to understand that the law of Moses wasn't just a moral guide or a spiritual guide in life. It was actually the civil law code of a nation, of a country, the, the nation of Israel. It's a political state and these laws in the Bible were what the judges of Israel used as their law book when they were trying a criminal case or when they were working out what penalties, punishments to, to impose or what the, um, what the compensation would be and so on. Okay, so the civil laws give specific cases that are sort of precedents for Israel's judges. Uh, I'll show you an example from Exodus 21, 22, 1 to 3. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now you know. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Now, can you see that behind that, there are two moral principles that never change. Uh, You shall not steal, it's the eighth commandment. You shall not murder, the sixth commandment. And these laws are spelling out specific cases and saying, well, what should the penalties and the compensations be in different cases? And uh, what about the complicated cases? Is it always murder when one person kills another person? What kind of exceptions might there be? So that's the moral and the civil. And the final type is the ceremonial laws. Uh, Now, these ones are a bit different. These are the laws that actually have a symbolic meaning. Okay, there were ceremonies and rituals of the people of Israel which were designed to teach them things about how holy God is and about how our sin cuts us off from God and we desperately need something to deal with that sin so that we can come close to God. Uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff in that category. Um, You can think of the priests and the whole system of offering sacrifices for sin uh, or there were laws about things that would make you impure, uh, like touching a dead body, meant that you couldn't approach God. Um, Or there were laws about clean and unclean food. All those things are symbolic or ceremonial laws to teach about God. Okay, so what was the Old Testament law? God's good instruction for the people he'd already saved, and it was a binding covenant document that set out the terms of the relationship between Israel and God. Okay? But as you read through the Old Testament, and even as you read through the law, you discover that this law has a big problem. Now, it's, it's not actually a problem with the law itself. Remember, the law is very, very good. It comes from God. But you can see there's a problem because this relationship between God and Israel goes very bad very quickly. And the question is, why? What, what's wrong? That's what we saw in Galatians chapter 3. We could have gone to a bunch of different places in the New Testament. But what Paul shows us is that this is really a double problem. Okay, The basic issue 
is that the relationship between God and Israel under the Old Covenant was based on law. Okay, so it was based on Israel promising to obey commandments. And that meant that in the end, the relationship didn't depend simply on the people trusting God. It actually depended on whether they were able to keep those commands or not, whether they were able to obey. Galatians 3 verse 12, Paul says, the the law is not based on faith. It's not based on just trusting God. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. And the whole success of this relationship depended on that. Were the people able to do what God commanded? And of course, the people of Israel were just like us, just like everybody. They had this heart problem that we call sin. That is, they were born with this natural tendency to reject God and turn away from Him and want to be in charge of their own lives. And so the second part of this problem is that the law itself didn't have the power to change people's hearts. It was like Australia's law. It's an external regulation. It could command people, but it couldn't transform them on the inside. Now, when you read a book like Deuteronomy, you discover the law actually longed to see a heart transformation in the people of Israel. It longed for the people to love God with all their heart and to obey Him because they loved Him. But the law couldn't make that happen. And the result is tragic. Okay, remember the the law promised all these amazing blessings of life and abundance if the people obeyed God. But because of these problems, the law could only ever end up bringing death and God's curse and judgment. Paul says in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But you know, the other thing that Paul tells us about the Old Testament law in Galatians 3 is that it was never meant to be permanent. Uh, it It was never meant to be a permanent covenant between God and His people. It was only ever like a temporary babysitter until Jesus came. See, long before God gave the law at Mount Sinai, he'd made a much older covenant with Abraham. And that was a covenant that wasn't based on law, it was based on unconditional promises of pure grace. God promised to bless all the nations and he'd made those promises to Abraham hundreds of years before Mount Sinai. Uh, Listen again, Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then uh, later on, we read in verses 17 to 19, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, that's like if the blessing depends on law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That it was added... It was added, but only until Jesus. 
You understand? God had already given these amazing promises to Abraham uh, in advance. It's like the gospel in advance. And the new covenant in Jesus, well, it's actually strange. Do you realize that means the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant? That's what Paul tells us. And the new covenant in Jesus is based on God's unconditional promises to Abraham. And you receive those promises by faith. So let's fill that out. The new covenant. What's the new covenant? Well, the new covenant, like the old covenant, it's a relationship between God and people. But the new covenant, what are the terms of the new covenant? The new covenant says this. Turn to Christ, trust him as your saviour, and you will find true freedom. True freedom. Uh, What sort of freedom do we find in the new covenant in Christ? Well, we get freedom from the penalty of sin. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, and through his blood shed for us, God forgives us completely and unconditionally when we turn to Jesus. And we're also freed from the power of sin, because when we trust in Jesus, he sends God's Spirit into our lives, and God's Spirit begins to transform our hearts so that we can actually start to love God. Now, what does that mean with our relationship to the Old Testament law? Okay, we're thinking about what does the Old Testament law have to do with us? It means two things. First of all, we are not under the law. Paul says that uh, a number of times. I've just picked one. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, what does it mean to say that we're not under the law of the Old Testament? Well, basically, it means that the law of Moses is not our covenant document with God. Okay, the law of Moses is not what describes the terms of our relationship with God. Our covenant document is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for our sins. And then the teaching of Jesus and the apostles in in the New Testament. Now that's very, very good news. Because what it means, remember how the law included those blessings and curses? Well, it means that the law is not standing over us anymore with the threat of the curses from God if we disobey, if we can't obey. Because it's not our law. It's not our law. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that, um, who am I going to pick? He's not here, I'll pick him. The James Davidson, uh, if you don't know James, it's about yay Let's imagine that um, James Davidson decides to pick a fight with Josh Kosh. Okay. In fact, he, he challenges Josh to a duel. Okay, now I don't know why James would do that. I know who I'd have my money on. Uh, but imagine that he does, and it turns out that Josh is a complete chicken, right? He's a coward. And he runs out and he hides in his car. Okay, you got that so far? And then I stand up here and I publicly call Josh a chicken. Now, do you know that under Chilean law, I could go to jail for that? It's true. Article 404 of the Chilean Penal Code says, anyone who insults or publicly discredits another for having refused a duel will go to jail. But if a Chilean policeman came in here and tried to haul me off, you know, get me arrested, they wouldn't be able to, would they? Because it's not my law. 
The law can only condemn you if you are under its jurisdiction. Can't. We are free from the Old Testament law. We're not under it. Do you know that means? We are not even under the Ten Commandments. If you're shocked and if you're not convinced, read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 later. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, especially what Paul says about the words engraved on tablets of stone. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. But if we're not under the Ten Commandments, that means we're not under any of the Old Testament law. Okay? And it gets even better. Um, we get to the New Testament, and it's true. Jesus gives us commands to obey. The apostles in the New Testament give us commands to obey, and we strive to obey them. But in the New Covenant, at the end of the day, our relationship with God doesn't depend on our ability to obey those commands. That's why Paul says here, Romans 6.14, that we are not under law, but under grace. Yes, the old covenant began with God's grace, but there is so much more grace in the new covenant. And that means our weaknesses don't ruin it. So what are the terms of our relationship with God? What's the covenant document say? It says, come to Jesus, turn to him, put your faith in him, and you are saved. That's it. See, this new covenant in Jesus' blood, it's also like a marriage, but it's a marriage without a prenup. There's, there's no prenuptial agreement that's going to come back to condemn you later. This is unconditional forgiveness and love. And that's why Paul can say these amazing words in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, at this point, it sounds all very nice, but I suspect that there are a few of you who are sitting there quite worried. You're thinking, Stephen, uh, it sounds like you're saying that it doesn't matter whether we obey God or anything because there are no rules. It's okay, don't panic. I haven't said the second thing about our freedom in the new covenant yet. Here's the second thing. Being freed from the law of Moses with its rules and its punishments doesn't lead to being more sinful. It's not a license to sin. It's actually the other way around. And that's because of what I said. Christ has sent his spirit in our, into our hearts, the spirit of holiness. And the spirit transforms our hearts so that we can begin to love God and live in obedience and godliness and holiness. So what that means is that because we've been freed from the law through the Spirit, everything that the law was longing for has finally been fulfilled in us. Not because we're under the law, but because we've been freed from the law and given God's Spirit. Okay, so remember the, the law longed for people's hearts to be transformed so that, so that they genuinely love God and love others and obey Him for that reason. That's what's God, what God's Spirit is fulfilling in us, not through the law, but through that unconditional forgiveness that Jesus gives us. Again, there's a bunch of passages I could pick. Listen to Galatians 5, 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled 
in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so when we turn to Christ, he frees us from sin and death, and then we actually start to live by those principles that we read about, that we're going to learn about in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law. And in fact, we fulfill the entire Old Testament law, not because we're under it. It's not our covenant document. Remember, it's not our law. We fulfill it because the Spirit helps us to live lives that the law was looking for all along, okay? these lives of love for God. So how does that apply to us, apply to us practically? Well, when you understand the freedom that we have in Christ, you'll also understand the two mistakes that we need to make sure we avoid. Okay, first of all, we're under grace, not law. There's no rules. Now, that can sound scary, okay? Because it, it sounds like we're allowing people to sin. And, and so the, the tendency is we go, well... They're going to go crazy, right? We, we better just sneak in a few rules to try and keep them under control. Please resist that urge. Okay, resist that temptation to push other Christians or to push yourself towards that idea that there are rules that we have to keep if we want to stay under God's favor. Don't make people think that our salvation... Well, well it... It requires obeying enough of God's rules just to make it over the line. That's legalism. But on the other hand, don't think that being free from law means that, oh, well, we just stop struggling against sin and we we do what we want. We don't have to strive for holiness. Well, of course not. Jesus freed us so that we can begin to obey him and live for him in holiness. Uh, Now, most of the time, that's a struggle for us. Now, because we haven't been made completely like Jesus, yet we will be one day. But if you trust in Christ, you really do have a new power in you to love God and to live for Him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 15. He says, What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. And then in verse 18, You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We've been freed not to live for sin, but to live for righteousness. And uh, if you want to see another passage, see how Paul avoids both of those mistakes. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21. You see how Paul talks about not being under the law, the law of Moses anymore. But he says, but I am under the law of Christ. That's a law that frees us. Well, uh, we're nearly at the end, but I suspect at this point some of you are still worried, okay? You're thinking, all right, I I get all that. You're okay on the previous point. But it sounds like you're saying that the laws in the Old Testament have nothing to do with us as Christians. Uh, I mean, don't they speak to us at all? And don't we even keep the Ten Commandments? Well, the answer is yes, of course they do, and yes, of course we do. The, The law of Moses is not our covenant document, but it is God's word to us today. It was written for us. We need to read it and understand it if we want to grow as followers of Jesus. Um, But we read it as members of Jesus' kingdom in the new covenant, not as members of Israel in the old covenant. And the key point is that Jesus has fulfilled the whole Old Testament, including the law. And so we need to read the law through that lens of Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, And let me just briefly mention the two main ways 
that the Old Testament law teaches us today as God's word. Okay, so first of all, this is really simple. Uh, the law teaches us wisdom about all kinds of things. Uh, it teaches us about what God's like, um, about the world, about our own sin. And again, that's because God never changes, and this is God's word, and always will be uh, God's word. And so it's constantly showing things about God uh, and who he is. Uh, I'm not going to say more about that. We'll see lots of examples um, when we go through the Ten Commandments. But the other way the law of Moses teaches us today is that it points forward to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of God's plan through the whole Bible. Okay, see, everything about the Old Testament was looking forward to something bigger and better that God was going to do and to this kingdom that God was going to bring. Jesus arrived and he says, I'm the fulfillment. I'm bringing everything that the Old Testament was looking forward to. How does that work with the law of Moses in particular? Uh, well, I'm working in twos at the moment. So there are two main ways that the law in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. First of all, the law points forward to Christ's finished work for us. That is, it points forward to his once for all death and resurrection for our sins. <clears throat> okay, and the main parts of the law that point forward to Christ's finished work are the ceremonial parts. Remember we talked about the sacrifices for sin uh, and, and all of that. Hebrews uh, tells us that those sacrifices which the priests had to repeat over and over and over and over, they were all pointing to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and that explains why those bits of the law, they seem to disappear when we get to the new covenant and to Jesus' teaching. Um, and it's because Jesus' death is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Okay, those laws were like little prophecies, little models that were prophesying the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sin. But what about the other parts of the law, uh, the moral and civil parts? Well, they mostly point forward to the Spirit's work in us, which is an ongoing work, isn't it? They point forward to uh, that life of freedom and godliness and love that Jesus calls us to um, as forgiven, transformed sinners. Uh, and that explains why those bits of the law have got so much in common with Jesus' teaching. They don't disappear. In fact, Jesus makes those principles even bigger and better and he fills out the true purpose of the Old Testament law. And so that means that we do end up obeying a lot of those commands in the Old Testament. We obey them from the heart and in an even deeper way. But it's not because we're under those bits of the law. It's because God doesn't change and Christ has freed us for godly and holy living. So when you're reading the Old Testament law, uh, if you're wondering, well, how does it apply to us? The most helpful question to ask is not, do we have to obey this law? The most helpful question is, how does this law, how does this part of God's word point forward to Jesus in the new covenant? Does it point forward to his finished once for all work for us on the cross? Or does it point to his work by his spirit of transforming us and leading us to godly and righteous living? Right, uh, who feels like I've just done a big brain dump of about this much information? Uh, I could, thank you, I feel like that. Um, for today, what are the essential things to take away? 
we love the idea of freedom, don't we? Um, and we should love freedom. It's a very good thing. When we, when we see people who are oppressed or downtrodden or enslaved, our inner sense of justice kicks in, and it should. Uh, and, and when we feel like we're trapped um, in a mindless job uh, or in a mundane life of boredom, we long to be free from that. And that's a good thing, but the problem is that often our idea of freedom is wrong. Um, we only think in terms of being free from something, okay? Free from that horrible boss uh, or those pesky relatives or my life that doesn't have any purpose. Uh, and even worse, our, tel- our, our world tells us that true freedom would mean freedom from God himself. Problem with that is that that sort of freedom doesn't exist. Um, it's impossible. It's like a mirage in the desert. When you get to what you thought was freedom from everything, there's nothing to quench your thirst. There's only death. Because true freedom isn't just freedom from, it's also freedom for something much, much better. Jesus has freed us from all kinds of things, and it's just amazing, from um, the law and condemnation and sin and, and death and judgment, but Jesus has also freed us for a new life, which is so much better, uh, a life of living as sons and daughters of God for eternity, a life uh, of loving God and so obeying Him, not out of fear, but because His Spirit has put this desire in us to love God and to love others. Jesus has freed us to finally become the glorious people that we were created to be. And that's true freedom. Freedom to find our eternal joy and purpose and fullness in God, as children of God. And that freedom is the start of a new life. Uh, As I said, it's not an easy life. It's going to involve struggling against sin, struggling to obey God in every area of our lives. But it's not the struggle of a person drowning in a river. It's the struggle of someone who's learning to walk and run and thrive again after a miraculous life-saving operation. That's what Jesus has done for us, and that story will never end. Let me pray, and then I might stay up here for like two minutes for a couple of questions. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there are things in your word which are too deep and too complex for us to grasp completely. We pray that over the next 10 weeks, we come to love and cherish these parts of your word that sometimes seem a bit scary or a bit dry. Help us to see them as your life-giving, beautiful word. And Father, this morning, we want to pray that you would help each of us to understand the freedom that there is simply by turning to Jesus and trusting in him freedom from death and judgment, freedom for eternal life and fullness, freedom to love you like we were made to do. Please help us to encourage each other to find joy in that freedom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.